0: Let's ask for God's help. Lord, we really do want to do that now. We want to ask for your help as we come to this part of your word. And I'm praying that by the Holy Spirit, which the resurrected Christ has poured out on his people, that you would open our eyes to see the glorious and wonderful truths that, that are stored up for us here. Give us soft hearts. Give us active minds. Oh Lord, give us faith and, and give us joyful obedience. And I pray that we would respond well to your love this morning with a love that is begotten by you and is in joyful and glad response to all that you've done. So Lord, empower us now for this encounter with your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. We're talking about love today. That sounds kind of like the title to a song, doesn't it? The word love is so cliched in our culture. It means so many different things to so many different people. We love people. We love pizza. Love is all you need until it isn't. And None of that's a reason to avoid this discussion on love. In fact, all of the confusion that exists in our world around the idea of love is why we need to let God define for us what love is, what love looks like, what love must be among the people of God. Now, I just want to remind you that today is part two of what's really one big message based on one big passage that we started last week. So beginning in verse 22 of chapter one, this passage is, is, is built around one main command here. Love one another. And that main command, back in, in in last week's passage, that main command, love one another, is sandwiched in between two big reasons for that command, which we looked at last week. Remember, that's, a, that's an important pattern we see in the Bible, commands and reasons. And if you weren't here last week, you can, you can listen to the message on our website or podcast to get a better sense of what's going on here today. But let, let me quickly sum up Peter's two reasons for why we... Must love, And they're both connected. Both these reasons are connected to salvation. So first, in verse 22, Peter talked about the responsive role that we played in our salvation. That we purified our souls by our obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So, in other words, when we repented of our sin and began to follow Jesus, we were embarking down a journey of love. And, and, and we connected this, this may not be exactly what Peter's saying, but it's, but it's true that we connect this just to Jesus' command to take up our crosses and follow him. Where did Jesus go with his cross? He went to die as an act of love for his people. And so as we follow him, we're following him down the, the bloody path of sacrificial love. Being a Christian and loving others are, are, are inseparable. You can't pull them apart. The second reason is that we've been born again. Not of perishable seed, like the first time we were born, but of the imperishable seed of the living and abiding word of God, which means, like we saw last week, the people of God are your forever family, connected with eternal bonds that will outlast any human bond or connection. This is a fairly major point. I've come back to it in my own thinking several times this week. Because like we saw, like we talked about last week, Peter's words really challenge our tendency to think of physical realities here on earth as being more real than spiritual realities. And see, all along in his letter, Peter's been pushing us in the opposite direction. He's been telling us that our heavenly inheritance is more real than any earthly treasure because it's imperishable. The death of Jesus is more valuable than silver or gold because it's imperishable. And our spiritual family is more permanent than our physical family because we've been born again into it by imperishable seed. And as I thought about it this week, it hit me that Peter is doing, for our idea of family, what Paul does in in Ephesians 5 for our idea of marriage. Right, so we already know from Jesus' words that marriage is temporary. right? So it's not going to be there in the resurrection. And in Ephesians 5, Paul shows us that as beautiful and wonderful as human marriage is, it is a picture of a greater reality. The relationship between Jesus and his church. So in other words, when it comes to marriage, we shouldn't look at, at Jesus and the church and think, oh, that's kind of like a marriage. No, no, we should look at a marriage and go that's kind of like Jesus in the church because that's, human marriage is just the picture right, of the real thing that will outlast all human marriage. So similarly, when Peter contrasts the perishable seed of our first birth with the imperishable seed of our second birth, what Peter's helping us see is that human reproduction, human family, they're temporary pictures of the eternal reality of the family of God. So we shouldn't look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and be like, oh, that's kind of like a family. Instead, we should look at a human family and go, that's a picture of the family of God, the eternal family of God. And that's Peter's point, that we should love our brothers and sisters in Christ because they're no less a family than our earthly family. And in fact, they're going to outlast our earthly family by a factor of infinity. Think of the comfort that this would bring to people who are being rejected by their families for their faithfulness to Jesus. Think of the challenge this would bring to people who might be tempted to turn their backs on Jesus for the sake of keeping their families happy. Think of the encouragement this is to all of us to love each other well because we're going to spend forever together. See, that's where this truth points us. And just in case it needs to be said, I don't. It shouldn't need to be said, but just in case it does. Peter is not telling us that now that we have a forever family, we can forget about our physical family. In fact, Peter's argument makes sense because we love our physical family. Think about it. If you love the people that you are bound together with by blood for a few decades and should you not also love the people who you are bound together with the eternal word of God for a few billion years? That's, that's kind of how his argument works. So I hope that we don't hear Peter saying things that he's not actually saying. I hope we know that there's a very important space in between the one extreme of worshipping our families like they're everything and on the other hand, ignoring our families like they're nothing. Those are not the only two options. There's a very important space in the middle. And and we're going to see that in chapter 3 where Peter shows husbands and wives how the gospel actually levels up our responsibilities to each other. So that's all coming, but it's just important uh, to, to give a it's perhaps important to give a little preview of, of some of that. One final point before we get into today's text. Let's remember with these two reasons, okay, the reason that you've purified your souls and the reason that you've been born again, these commands to love are addressed to people who have been born again. People who have responded to Jesus with repentance and faith. Now, if you're listening to this message today and you have not responded to Jesus with repentance and faith, if you have not been born again, then this sermon today is going to feel like nothing but a crushing burden. Stuff to do that is impossible to do. And if that's your experience today, if if you receive this sermon like a crushing burden, that may be the Lord showing you that apart from him, you can't obey Him. You can't be righteous. And He's calling you to repent of your sins and look to Jesus who lived the perfect life that you should have lived and didn't and who died the death that you deserved in your place, in the place of His people and, 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 and rose from the dead and, and bought and paid for the gift of forgiveness and the gift of making us righteous in His sight. And when we call on the name of the Lord and are saved, and, and we're born again by the spirit that he bought for us on the cross, then we find, like 1 John 5, 3 says, his commandments are not burdensome. That's a, that's a, a, a born-again, spirit-bought gift, that his commandments are not burdensome. And so we might find his commandments challenging, warning, instructing, but not crushing. And instead, we're going to find in us a, a joyful readiness to obey God. Not because not we've got anything to prove. Not because we're trying to earn his love. We so you know, we can't. We know we've already received it. We have a heavenly father who is for us, like we've just been singing. And so we want to please him. And we can, because that's what he accomplished. So... With all of that, without losing sight of any of that, if you can, everything we just said, if you can sort of keep it in your vision, let's look now at verse 22, where we discover what love looks like. We're going to pick up at the end of that first phrase in verse 22. We've already looked at the reason. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now let's look up, pick up at, at, with those words, a sincere brotherly love. This begins to show us the character and the nature of the love that God's people must show to one another. And the first element there is that it's sincere. The word sincere, basically, in the original language, means not hypocritical, unhypocritical. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. So that means that the love that God's people must show to each other is not faked, It's not something that we pretend to do. As one author said, sincere love, quote, comes from an open and genuine heart without ulterior motives. It does not deliberately put on a show. So, in other words, it's the real deal. Anyone can fake love, anyone can fake a smile. Anyone can pretend to be nice to other people, especially to look good in front of other people. I'm sure we can probably all think of times where we've done that. But the love that flows from a born-again heart is sincere. It loves even when nobody's watching, even when nobody's paying attention, even when there's nothing in it for you to gain. Because Christian love, is it's love. It's sincere. So love is sincere. The second is that what's being described here is brotherly love. Sincere brotherly love, says verse 22. Now in the original language, the word brotherly love comes from a a single word that describes the kind of love that siblings in a family have for each other. And so Peter's reminding us again that because we've been born again by one father, that makes us family, and we're to love one another with a sibling-to-sibling love. I have a friend who moved to the States and he began attending a Southern Baptist church. And before too long, he began calling me brother. And it kind of made me smile at first because that's just not something that we do here culturally. How's it going, brother? It feels very American, doesn't it? But you know, after thinking about it some more, I don't think it's cute or silly. I think it's wonderful because it's true. He is my brother. If, if you've been born again, if you know Jesus, you're my brother or my sister. And, and, and maybe you're uncomfortable with using that word. And we should maybe ask, are we more concerned about sounding American than we should be? But uh, that wasn't in my notes. But the big question is, what goes on in your heart when you look at another Christian? Do you see just another person who happens to go to your church or you know goes to another church or, or do you see a brother or a sister? And do you love them that way even when it's hard? See, it's, it's interesting as we think about brotherly love. Isn't it true that in our physical families brotherly love often doesn't mean warm fuzzies. People love their human family even when it's hard, even when they're driving you nuts because it's your family. You don't just walk away. Why don't we love each other in the body of Christ that way? Why do people leave churches way easier than they leave families? What if brotherly love was less about how we felt and more about how we chose to be faithful to each other and care for each other because we're family and that's just what we do? The love that we were saved to show is a brotherly love flowing from the truth that being born again together makes us siblings in a forever family. The next phrase in verse 22 is just the main command. Love one another. So there's not much to add here except to show that, that, that Peter is focusing on the priority of Christians loving each other. So Peter's not focusing on the love that we're to have for the world. Not to say we shouldn't love the world. That's just not what he's focusing on here. He's focusing on the relationship of of God's people to each other. And we're to love each other, one another. The next word Peter uses is earnestly. We are not to love each other half-heartedly or casually, but earnestly. Earnestly. This word for earnestly is used a few other times in the New Testament. One of those times is in Luke 22. Jesus is in Gethsemane, staring down the cross, begging his Father for an other way, if possible. And verse 44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Second time we see this word, Acts 12. Peter himself has been arrested. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And that's the word that Peter uses to describe the love that we must have for each other. The kind of word you use for Jesus' agony before the cross kind of word do you use for a church staying up late to beg God to save one of their beloved leaders from death? This word, can, can point, it points to eagerness. It points to effort. It can also describe perseverance, like you don't stop. You don't give up quickly. And you and I are to love one another like that. Do you think it's fair to say that this love should be a priority? like something we're deliberate about, something we don't just do when we have time for it, but something we make a priority, something that that makes us tired sometimes, maybe often, something that affects our budgets, our spending. This is how we're to love one another earnestly. Finally, we're told that love must come from a pure heart, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is a similar idea here to love being sincere. It suggests that our motives are pure. We're not out to get something. We're not in it for ourselves. We're not wanting people to notice us and praise us. That's not why we're doing it. We're loving our brothers and sisters because they are our brothers and sisters, because we've been born again by the same father into the same family, and this is what our Lord calls us to do and empowers us to do and makes us want to do. So this is what Christian love looks like. Sincere, brotherly, earnest, and pure. That is what love the love that we're called to give each other must look like. Now we're going to look down at chapter 2 and verse 1 and notice the word, so, at the beginning. This is a connecting word. It connects what he's saying here with what's come before, and it's showing us this is not a brand new thought. This is connected with, with what's come before. And one way to explain this connection is that, is that here in chapter 2, verse 1, this is showing us what love does not look like. Or we could say these are the love killers. These are the weeds in the garden. The weeds in the garden that we need to pull up if we want the fruit or the flowers, if you will, of love to grow. This is what we got to get rid of so that love can flourish. So, verse 1 says, so put away. This is what we need to lay aside or take off. This word put away sometimes used like taking off dirty clothes. I uh, butchered a deer a few days ago. I had to take off my clothes afterwards because uh, you can fill in the rest yourself. And, and that's, that's kind of the picture of what's going on here. Like dirty clothes, these are the things we got to get rid of for the sake of love. And so Peter gives us a list of things that we need to put away or take off. The first is malice. Malice is just connected with the word evil. And it points to the idea of having an evil or a bad intention towards someone. Like wanting something bad to happen to them or intending to do it yourself. Now you might think, I'd never do that. I'd never plan for evil things to happen to someone, but I wonder has there ever been someone that you really don't like and you hear that something bad happened to them and you think serves them right? Or you see someone struggling with something and it gives you just a little twins of pleasure. Or or there's someone that you feel jealous about and then you hear them getting criticized and you think, yes. Those would be all examples of having a a malicious intent towards someone. I think we all probably know the taste of malice, which is why Peter tells us to put it all away. There should not be a drop of malice contaminating our love for our brothers and sisters. The next word is deceit. Deceit has to do with treachery, dishonesty, craftiness. It's the opposite of honesty and genuineness. It's the opposite of speaking the truth in love. <laughs> the opposite of that is deceit. Deceit is when, you know, when we ask someone how we can pray for them, really just because we want to find out what's going on in their life. Deceit is when we play tricks and games with our words and actions to, 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 to hurt someone or to, to benefit ourselves. And all deceit, every last bit of it, we must put away. The next word is hypocrisy. This is the opposite, like we've seen, of the word sincere up in verse 22. So we've already kind of heard about this. Hypocrisy has to do with putting on a show, pretending. Pretending to be nice to someone when we actually hate their guts and are gossiping about them behind their backs. Pretending to do good things for people when we're actually just trying to make ourselves look good. And God's people are to put that away like a dirty jacket. Love one another, not perform for one another. Fourthly, we're to put away or put off all envy. And I wonder if this one might strike a little bit closer to home. Maybe you don't struggle with malice or deceit or hypocrisy. Maybe you think, man, Chris, you're you're a pretty terrible person to be, you know, sympathizing with these things so much. I've never felt that. But I I wonder if, if we maybe get envy a little bit more. Is it not easy to look at what other people have and want it? Maybe even in our church community here, we look at other people's homes or hobbies or health, kids or cars or careers, brains, bodies, beauty, salaries or spouses, lifestyles or lack of suffering, abilities or opportunities, and we want it. Envy drives so many other sins in our heart. That's because envy, envy is fundamentally a lack of faith. Like You know like a jealous kid at Christmas who's, you're opening gifts and he's like looking like, what did you give them, what did you give them? There, there's this lack of trust that, that, that your parent, your father, your mother actually is going to take care of you. I think you gave them more. That, that, that's what's going on with envy. We want what we don't have because we, we don't trust God to actually be taking care of us and giving us what we need. And so it's not hard to see that envy fights against love, right? It's hard to be generous of, with someone that you're envious of. It's hard to pray for them and care about them when you want what they have. You know, when you're envious of someone, it's so easy to secretly rejoice when bad things happen to them. Or to act hypocritically around them. So envy, we've got to see envy as poison to brotherly love. It's poison. And Peter tells us to get rid of it like the filthy rag that it is. Finally, he tells us to get rid of all slander. Now, there's some discussion about the difference between the word slander and gossip. But but basically, in general, this word here is just pointing to, to saying evil things. That's why the King James translates this as evil speakings. It works. That's kind of helping us get at what Peter's saying. So, whether it's talking to someone in in a hurtful way or talking about them to someone else in a hurtful way, the idea of evil speaking, slander, is using our words to hurt, using our words in harmful ways. Slander does so much damage to the relationships between Christians, doesn't it? Slander does so much damage to churches. Doesn't it? I mean, we've experienced that here, and here's the sad thing. I don't think it's all that unique. And it shouldn't be that way. Slander is, once again, poison to brotherly love, and Christians are called to put it away. There should be not a hint of slander among us, a hint of evil speakings among us as we walk in love with one another. And that concludes Peter's list, right? We've he's shown us what love looks like—sincere, earnest, brotherly love for one another from a pure heart. And now he's just shown us what love does not look like, or or what's poison to love, what kills love. All the things we got to put off if we're going to love: all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. And there's a last stop in our passage. Peter points us to the need for us to cultivate and nourish our spiritual life from which this genuine love grows. See, I I think this is just so helpful because, like we've seen, these commands to love flow out of our salvation. And and even knowing that, even if if you just know that, if we stop the sermon here, it can just feel like a checklist, a to-do list do this, do this. And again, like his commandments are not burdensome. We can do that, but he gives us so much more. And he tells us now how to cultivate the spiritual life and the spiritual maturity from which love flows. Like newborn infants, he says in verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, this might seem like it's coming out of the blue to you. Like, we've just heard about love and not love, and now he's telling us, like, babies to crave milk. What's going on here? What's going on, Peter? Well, here's what's interesting. In the original language, long for the pure spiritual milk is actually the main command in these first couple of verses, first three verses in chapter 2. Here's how we could translate this a little bit. It's kind of awkward in English, but this is kind of Peter's idea. Putting away all malice, etc. Putting that away, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. So, so Peter sees there's a connection here. Is we want to cultivate love. We want to cultivate love. We've got to, on the one hand, put away the love killers. And on the other hand, we want to crave And long for the stuff that's going to nourish us as we grow up into salvation. This is how you love, is by craving the stuff that nourishes you. So there's a few important ideas here that we we want so we can understand this. First Peter tells us to crave milk like newborn infants. Now what we need to get here is this is not a rebuke. There's other parts in the Bible where Christians are called babies or infants in 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 a, a rebuking way. Like in Hebrews 6, it's like you shouldn't be on milk, you should be on meat by now, right? So it's kind of it's like he's saying to these Christians, you're like a, a grown-up with a little bottle, you know, just sucking on some milk. It's like, you should, you should be eating steak by now. That's not the context here. The context here is that this is something good. You know the way babies crave milk? That's, that's how you need to crave the stuff that makes you grow. Babies craving milk is a great picture of, of craving something, isn't it? When babies are hungry, they want something five minutes ago, and they'll use all of their powers to let you know that they want it until they get it. So here, here, here's something. The next time we hear a baby get upset in our gathering here, which happens often because we've got a lot of babies here, it's a good problem, it's wonderful. So the next time you hear a baby get upset— Take it as a reminder to crave the things that are going to make you grow spiritually. Just the way that baby's, just be like, man, that baby's hangry. That's how I ought to be for the things that are going to make me grow spiritually. That's that's the force of of Peter's picture here. And, And so let's just make another connection here. Even though Peter is not saying you're babies and you should be grown up. There is a connection between this idea of being born again and, and being babies, right? So when you're born again, you're a baby. And, and there is a connection here that he wants us being born again to crave the things that are going to make us grow. So what are the things that make us grow? Well, it's interesting. What does verse, verse 2 say here? Long for the pure spiritual milk. What's that talking about? Well, it's very interesting here. This word that Peter uses for spiritual is only used two times in the whole New Testament. That's kind of tough, because usually when we want to know what a word means, we look at how other people use it in different places in the Bible, and we get a picture. It's only used twice in the Bible. The other time is in Romans 12.1, where Paul talks about offering our bodies as living sacrifices, as our spiritual worship. What's interesting, we might learn more about this word as we look at how it's used by other Greek writers who weren't, not the biblical authors, but secular Greek writers. And this word has to do with something that is logical, or in other words, something that lines up with reality. So this word that, 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 that this translates spiritual means something that lines up with what is real, And so, without doing a whole big, massive Greek word study here that would put us all, including me, to sleep, the the general sense here, Peter is telling us to crave that which lines up with our new life in Christ. To crave the things that cause us to grow up in maturity in Christ. Crave the things that sustain and nourish our spiritual growth so to say spiritual milk that's, that's not a bad place if you're a spiritual baby crave spiritual milk get, get hungry for the stuff that's going to make you grow that's, that's the idea here now what is that? what is the stuff that's going to make you grow? well I think we some of us know this from a song we learned in Sunday school that if you read your Bible and pray every day you'll grow, grow, grow and you'll grow, grow, grow. And you'll grow, grow, grow. And if you don't know the song, I'm, never mind. But, <laughs> but that, that's, there's a lot of truth there. In fact, there's some translations that say long for the pure milk of the word, which is, I'm not sure about that translation, but the idea is good. That, that the word of God causes us to grow. It does. And if we want to grow, if we want to grow up into salvation so that love spills out of our lives, we need to dig into the Word. But I also think we know that God's design for us to be nourished in Christ is not just us sitting off in a corner reading the Bible by ourselves. There are other God-given means of nourishing our spiritual life, one of which we're doing at this very moment. Fellowshipping with God's people together. That's why Hebrews says, don't neglect to to assemble together. You need this. You need to speak the truth in love to one another. You need to encourage one another, stirring one another up to love and good works. That's something that God uses to make us grow. Prayer is something that we grow by, both on our own and together with others. We could add to this list. These are all things that God has given us to nourish our growth in Christ. To feed us as we we mature. And Peter says, all those things, be hungry like a baby for them. Crave them. Long for them. Because we need that nourishment to cause us to grow up into salvation, like the rest of verse 2 says. And you'll remember that salvation in Peter doesn't just mean when we got saved. It's this whole process that culminates in us being resurrected with Jesus. So as we, as we head in that direction, growing up into maturity, not just staying stuck in one spot, but growing in holiness, growing in love for one another, we gotta be nourished. We gotta crave for the stuff that nourishes us. And what will come out is love. You can see how this command to love is so connected to our salvation. Just get the big pictures of this text. You've been saved to love, he says in verse 22. So love, now yearn for the stuff that's going to make you grow up into salvation because that's going to make you love more. The more mature you are in the Lord, the more loving you will be. So crave the stuff that makes you grow The way we grow into salvation is by craving the God-given nourishment that makes us grow. Everything God's given us in his word. Everything God's described in his word. Now verse 3 finishes this thought off in a very interesting place. It says, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now this is one of those great times where Peter quotes the Old Testament. I told, we, we look back in verse 10, and 12 of, 10 to 12 of chapter 1 and I said Peter's going to teach us how to read the Old Testament. Peter here is echoing Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Here's what's interesting. Psalm 34. Maybe turn there for a moment. This is really cool to see. Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible. 34. What's Psalm 34 start off with? Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Abimelech, Philistine ruler. Why was David there? He'd been kicked out of the land because Saul was trying to kill him. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound maybe maybe a little bit like the situation that Peter's readers might have been in? In exile, away from the land, And, and spiritually, the situation that we're all in, not at home in the promised land yet? And there, in exile... In Philistia, David tastes God's salvation. David experiences the rescue of the Lord. He gets delivered from all of his fears. And so he says to the congregation, "'Taste and see that the Lord is good. He can save me, even far away from Jerusalem, far away from the land where I should be. Way there in in Philistia, God can save me. Taste and see that the Lord is good.'" That's a a great encouragement to exiles, isn't it? To look back and see when God did good and brought salvation to an exile like David. And notice that David is encouraging us to, to taste and see that the Lord is good. See, being a Christian is not just a box you check off on a survey. Knowing the Lord's goodness is like tasting good food. It gives us joy. We rave to other people. We feel satisfied by it. There's a whole sermon to be preached here about the joy and the responsive joy that we have when we truly know the Lord. That it's it is a sweet thing to us. Our soul is satisfied with the Lord. We know that he's good. We don't just check it off on a box, but we've tasted his goodness and the goodness of his salvation. And Peter's saying this: if you've tasted that God's salvation is good. Like David, then you're going to keep on craving more and more of it. You're going to want more. This is a spot where it is okay for us to be gluttonous. God's grace is an all-you-can-eat buffet, and we're never going to get full, so keep going back for seconds and thirds and fourths and tenths. That, that's kind of the idea here. If you've tasted it's good. Thanksgiving dinner and the table's always full, and, and as we do that, we grow up into salvation. The word if here is important, right? Peter's saying, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, it should make us ask the question, have I? That's not a bad question to ask. Because if we have, we're going to go, have I? Yeah, I have. If we haven't, that's going to lead us down a really helpful path of saying, do I know the Lord? Have I tasted that his goodness is? Have I tasted his goodness? And if we have, we'll go, "Yeah, I have." And yeah, I want more. And I want more, not just because I'm being selfish, but I want more so that that spiritual growth can spill out into love for my brothers and sisters. So we've walked our way through this passage. We've walked our way through these verses, we've seen what they mean, we've seen how they connect together, and it's often at this point in the message that we ask a question like, what are you and I supposed to do with this? What are you and I supposed to do with the passage like this? Well, this morning that's really easy, isn't it? Just do it. These are commands given to God's children who by faith and by the power of his Holy Spirit that Jesus bought for us on the cross, we are to obey. And I don't want want to imagine that I could improve on the Apostle Peter or somehow say what he said in a better way than he did. So I want to be really careful here as we go to apply this to this message. There's not a lot of work here to do. Here's the word. Let's go. But perhaps I might be either brave or stupid enough to give three brief encouragements on the path of love, three brief encouragements for you as you seek to to put this passage into practice. Very briefly, first, let's be committed to loving one another in this way, sincerely, earnestly, without malice, without envy. Let's be committed to doing this even when we don't feel like it. One of the futile ways we've inherited from our forefathers here in the West is the idea that our feelings are a reliable guide to reality. If you feel something is true, it must be true. If you feel like something's hard, oh, you must not be supposed to do it. And if we applied those ideas to love, if we only loved based on our feelings, guess how often it would happen? Well... Maybe that's telling, right? Lots of times we're not going to feel like loving people these way. Think of the family analogy. Parents. Parents of babies. Do you feel like getting up with your baby in the middle of the night all the time? I mean, if you do, I, I want your secret. But I'm, I'm sure we don't. Friends, do you always want to help out your friend that's struggling again? Is it, is it always your feelings? No. But this is what love looks like. So, notice Peter does not base his command to love on how we feel he's based it on our salvation which does not depend on our feelings don't wait for your heart to get in the right spot lead your heart down the path of love that's the first encouragement let your actions lead your heart not waiting the other way around second, don't wait for other people to love you like this before you love them. It's a game we often play, you know, like 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 kids on bicycles playing chicken, you know, waiting for the other person. I mean, don't you hear this and just think like like who wouldn't want to be loved like this? Who wouldn't who in this room would not want to be loved sincerely and earnestly like a brother or sister without any malice or envy or slander? Like and yet, and yet, so often we wait for that to happen. Or it's easy, at least, for us to wait for that to happen. We wait for the other person to come to us. We wait for the other person to say sorry first. We wait for the other person to initiate. Let's just ditch that idea. Let's follow Jesus. He took the initiative. I mean, we just started celebrating Advent today. Isn't that what he did? He didn't wait for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came when, when we were... We would murder him, and he knew we would, and he loved us anyways. So let's follow Jesus and be initiative taking lovers of one another. Maybe that's a big lesson we got to take to heart as we remember this Christmas season, this Advent season. Jesus' love is an initiative taking love, he goes after us. Third, don't expect it to be easy. I mean, where did love land Jesus? In a manger, and then on a cross, and a lot in between. And as we take up our crosses to follow Jesus down the path of sacrificial love, it's not going to be easy. Some of the sacrifice is going to be obvious. As we love each other, some of that sacrifice is going to be obvious. Some of it's going to not be obvious. Maybe you're introverted, and just coming here this morning and sticking around afterwards for a few minutes to talk to people is a major sacrifice to you, and you're going to go home exhausted. No one else sees that. The Lord does. Maybe you're extroverted, and staying home by yourself to make a meal for someone is what's challenging for you, because you thrive out where the party is. And none of that's bad. I forget exactly where I first heard it, but it's a powerful idea that hard does not equal bad. Feel the roughness of the cross on your shoulder and keep asking the Holy Spirit to empower your sacrificial love, knowing that there's a resurrection on the side of every death. And so, Emmanuel Baptist Church, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart Envy. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Heavenly Father, help us to respond to you And Lord, we know that the call to respond to this kind of love is not something we just do right here and now. This is a tomorrow morning kind of response. This is a Wednesday afternoon kind of response. This is a take up our cross daily kind of response. Would you empower your people for joyful, sacrificial, born again love? Would you help us to look to Christ and then to look to each other? And would you cause this community to be marked by this kind of love? We are asking for something impossible apart from you, but we know you love us and we can't wait, Lord, for, it, for us to keep on tasting together your goodness, for us to keep on growing in Christ for us to keep on walking together, for you to keep on drawing us to yourself together. So we offer ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.